Welcome to Eye on the Triangle with Sesha Hindi, a weekly glimpse into our community, bringing you news from the brickyard to your backyard. This week in news on Eye on the Triangle, a brief rundown of the latest news. Good evening, and thanks for listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC. I'm Yuvin Cornwall. And I'm Terry Van Cortland. According to the New York Times, Senator Mac Baucus, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, has announced further changes in the proposed health care bill, according to the New York Times. These changes will make access to the affordable health care easier for middle-class Americans by providing greater financial assistance as well as curb the impact of a proposed tax on high-end health insurance pol- um, policies. Senator Baucus stated that affordability is his main priority and showed that he had taken into account the criticisms of his colleagues that were concerned over the prospect of a mandate. The proposed changes would add $28 billion to the 10-year costs of the bill, but would still meet President Obama's requirement that the federal budget deficit may not be deepened by reform. A 66-page report calling for more troops in Afghanistan submitted by General Stanley McChrystal on August 30th is now under review by President Obama, according to the New York Times. In this confidential assessment, General McChrystal calls for more troops in Afghanistan within the next year or the conflict will, quote, likely result in failure. President Obama has expressed a reluctance to escalate the conflict, but the findings of General McChrystal directly contradict this intention. According to the report, tens of thousands of more troops, along with a dramatic change in operating procedures, are needed in order to defeat the Taliban insurgency. The president has not ruled out the possibility of adding more troops, but it is unclear what route will be taken until his advisors have had time to analyze the situation. Good news for North Carolinians. Public health officials announced today that the H1N1 flu vaccine is scheduled to be available as early as October, according to WRAL. Approximately 2,200 people statewide have presented flu-like symptoms, 506 of those at NC State, according to NCSU Student Health Services, meaning that the second wave of the H1N virus is imminent. The new vaccine comes in the form of a nasal spray, and federal regulations state that it will first be made available to pregnant women, child care providers who care for children six months of age or younger, health care workers, men and women aged six months to 24, and those with chronic conditions and compromised immune systems. Citizens are recommended to take the vaccine and practice good hygiene to prevent further spread of the virus. WRAL is reporting that North Carolina General Assembly member Ty Harrell, a Democrat from Wake County, has resigned amidst a continued probe into possible abuses of his campaign funds. Harrell reported 165 expenditures for the first six months of this year, a strikingly high number for a year in which he is not campaigning. A memo sent to Harrell's campaign finance chair also calls into question several expenditures at a high-end children's clothing store and a luggage store. In a statement made Sunday, Harrell cited the investigation and personal reasons as the cause of his resignation. According to court documents, Harrell and his wife have separated due to accusations of an extramarital affair. About a year ago, we were all hearing cries of drill, baby, drill from John McCain's presidential campaign, raucously supporting the prospect of offshore drilling. As it happens, WRAL is reporting that the echoes of that mantra have not yet faded. Today, Governor Beverly Perdue announced that the creation of a panel designed to further further explore the possibility of drilling for oil off the North Carolina shoreline. Governor Perdue is quoted as saying earlier in a statement that the North Carolina coast is home to an abundance of natural resources, some of which have the potential to be tapped as energy sources. As we research this potential for national and state use, I intend to make sure sound science and a thorough examination of the risks and benefits drive our decisions. 
It is imperative that North Carolina have the opportunity to share in the profits and not limit our options to pursue alternative energy solutions such as wind power. The panel, dubbed the Governor's Scientific Advisory Panel on Offshore Energy, will conduct feasibility studies and examine current laws in order to identify the positives and negatives of this proposed policy. North Carolina's Division of Parks and Recreation is seeing the silver lining on the recession cloud. According to WRAL, the agency reports that the number of visitors to state parks this year is up 14 percent from last year. That's a little over 10 million visitors. Locally, Jordan Lake and Cliffs of News Park experienced a 50 percent jump in guests. Taking the biggest hike, Crowder's Mountain west of Charlotte saw a 78 percent rise in park use. Lewis Ledford, the state parks director, attributes this to North Carolina's families searching for less expensive and local alternatives to the traditional summer vacation when the economy is rough. Higher education is about to become a possibility for undocumented immigrants. On Friday, the State Board of Community College voted in favor of allowing undocumented immigrants to attend community colleges starting next year. Stuart Fountain, the chairman of the policy committee, says that the children of parents who come into the county illegally should not be punished for the federal government's failure to deal with their legal status, according to WECT-TV. This decision has conditions, however. The students must have graduated from high school, must pay out-of-state tuition, and will not qualify for state or federal financial aid. Where would you expect the highest number of animal-related automobile accidents to be in North Carolina? Perhaps out west? A new report from the North Carolina Department of Transportation reveals that Wake County has the highest total in the state for drivers hitting animals. From 2006 to 2008, about 3,000 incidents were reported in Wake County, resulting in nearly $7 million in damage, 197 injuries, and one fatality. Statewide, there have been 18 animal crash deaths in the past three years. The report breaks down the incidents by time of year and time of day. October and November are the peak months for animal crashes, and these crashes are also most likely to occur in the evening and around sunrise. On this day in 1981, Sandra Day O'Connor is unanimously approved by the U.S. Senate as the first female Supreme Court justice. And in 1989, Hurricane Hugo made landfall in the United States in South Carolina. A year ago in 2008, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, the last two remaining independent investment banks on Wall Street, became bank-holding companies as a result of the subprime mortgage crisis. And finally, on this day, there are two birthdays we'd like to point out. Uh, socialite Nicole Ritchie. And, and born in 1947, author Stephen King. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll continue to listen. I on the Triangles VIP. Talking to people that matter. Hi, my name is Adam Compton, and you're listening to Eye on the Triangle. This is your VIP segment. It seems like every time we turn around today... There's always something about the health care debate that's going on around this country and before Congress. So today in VIP, we have Congressman David Price. With the exception of Raleigh, Congressman David Price represents most of our listening area. He represents Cary, Durham, parts of Raleigh, and all of Orange County. He was first elected to Congress in January of 1987, served until 1995, and then was reelected in 1997. Price holds a powerful role as chairman of the Subcommittee on Homeland Security and the Appropriations Committee. Just to kind of start us off, can you explain what's going on with the health care bill in Congress? The health care bill has been reported now by four out of the five committees of jurisdiction, the uh, three House committees and, and Senator Kennedy's uh, subcommittee in the Senate. Those, those bills are roughly similar to each other. And now Senator Baucus, the chairman of the fifth committee, has issued 
issued a draft bill, which his committee is going to work over in uh, coming days. Uh, that bill's considerably uh, different from the others, and uh, the, uh, in an effort to get the cost down, it uh, is less generous with respect to people who will need to be buying insurance and may have trouble doing so. That is, people not eligible for Medicaid, but just up, just up the income scale from that, and, and also the smallest uh, businesses. So we have those we have those five bills and a and a process that um, is still a bit uncertain as to who's going to vote first. But um, I think we can pass a good strong bill in the in the House. Uh, question is whether we'll wait and see what the Senate's going going to do, and that really hasn't been decided yet. The other day, the AP published a story that said the rate of health insurance has increased five times that of family incomes. How is the new health care bill going to help and deal with that issue? Well, healthcare inflation is uh, is ferocious, and uh, these costs are just eating us alive. Whether it be uh, families or businesses or, or our government, uh, the uh, people who are covered are uh, in, involved in the problem too, or have have reason to appreciate the problem because the premiums for uh, people ha- have gone up an average of uh, doubling every every uh, eight or nine years. So. Uh, and, and the deductibles and the co-payments are now greater, and the coverage just isn't what it used to be. And there are all too many instances of uh, people having uh, policies with fine print that really leave them uncovered if they get really, really sick. So uh, even people who are insured are not uh, immune from the problems. And then as for the uninsured, uh, they're uh, going into the emergency room for the most expensive possible care, often only when they get very sick. And that's costing the rest of us. That's, in fact, part of the part of the reason for those uh, high costs and how fast they're going up because of the cost of uncompensated care. It's, uh, it's estimated that the average American family pays a thousand dollars in elevated costs because of all the uncompensated care in the system that drives up costs for everyone else. So uh, this healthcare inflation is uh, is very. Uh, very destructive uh, and, and, and eats away at our uh, at our income and, and at uh, other things we need to be doing with our business and, and governmental dollars. Uh, the, the bill that we're talking about will uh, greatly reduce that burden of uncompensated care, and it will also uh, provide uh, affordable coverage for uh, uh, everybody so that uh, people who have a adverse health history, a pre-existing condition, will, will not find themselves priced out of the marketplace. They will have access to affordable insurance, just like everyone else. And of course, getting everyone in the system will enable us to bring down costs, because that's the way insurance works. Insurance works not just when you're insuring old people and sick people and having to pay their expenses, but when you're insuring uh, everyone, and therefore uh, costs are, are reduced because the risk is spread. Currently, what are the holdups to the bill, and what is the opposition saying about the bill? Well, the uh, opposition is uh, all over the place, really, and so it's hard to generalize about that. I think there are a certain number of partisan opponents who just simply want this to fail and want the president to fail, and there's nothing on earth we could do to draft a bill that would satisfy them. But uh, I, I certainly don't put... Uh, everybody in that uh, category. I think uh, there are some genuine differences. Some of the differences are pretty broad. I'm not sure what it will take to bridge some of these gaps. We uh, may or may not be able to have uh, bipartisan support for this uh, bill. 
the inclusion of a publicly administered option in this marketplace of plans for unattached individuals and small businesses, that uh, is a sticking point for some people. Some of us think it's really important to have such an option to, to um, exert a downward pull on costs and to offer good quality, good uh, competition, but uh, others disagree with that. I think probably the biggest issue is cost. Uh, the president has wisely said we uh, can't add to the deficit with this program. Unlike a lot of what President Bush did the last eight years, we're not going to just borrow the money. But I think we've got to find some money. I know we do. And um, that's what a lot of the debate's going to be about. Where where do those savings come from? I think we've got a good brief overview of what's going on with the health care bill in Congress. Are there any final points you would like to add? The only thing I would add is that a lot of your audience, uh, young adults, would uh, would do well to pay attention to this debate. Uh, I know uh, people on campus generally have pretty good uh, coverage, but uh, after they graduate, that may not be the case. And uh, sometimes it's possible to attain fairly economical coverage, but then if you have uh, a few health problems in your past, you, you may not find that to be the case, and you may or may not be covered at work. And, and in any case, you're not going to be young and healthy forever, so you need to buy into the system so that you'll be protected when you need to be. All of those things are uh, are facts of life for uh, people about to enter the workplace in their in their 20s, and they have a lot to gain by the system being reformed and uh, being participants in it. That was Congressman David Price, a Democrat representing the 4th Congressional District of North Carolina. Price was with us discussing the health care bill that is currently being debated before Congress. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle. That was your VIP segment with Adam Compton. Thanks for listening to Eye on the Triangle's VIP. I'm Saja Hindi. You just heard an interview with with Congressman David Price about the health care reforms. Next up, I did an interview with spokesman from the North Carolina GOP about the criticisms of the health care reforms. You can listen to them here. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle's VIP. Last week, we talked to North Carolina GOP spokesman Jordan Shaw about what the North Carolina Republican Party stance is on the health care reform. What kind of stance are you taking on the health care reform and what is the Republican Party doing to kind of inform the public of their stance? Certainly. Uh, I assume by health care reform, uh, we can talk mainly about uh, the latest the latest bill, the Max Baucus bill uh, that came out earlier this week. And kind of from the beginning, the, the North Carolina GOP has, has tried to inform the people of North Carolina that the, so far anyway, the proposals coming out of Washington have not been uh, the best thing for the state. And uh, that continues to be our position as it relates to the Baucus bill. Um, the latest bill uh, from Senator Baucus is really still government-run health care, just with a different name. The message that we're kind of sending out is that this bill uh, increases spending and raises taxes. And given the uh, economic climate in North Carolina right now, um, the state's already operating uh, on a shoestring budget. Um, obviously, the budget this year, they've had to uh, raise taxes in North Carolina almost a quarter of a billion, and, uh, or almost a billion, and cut education funding by almost a quarter of a billion. So this is not the time um, to be shelling out almost $850 billion over 10 years for a health care plan that's going to just add more taxes uh, to the middle class. We just think that people in North Carolina simply can't afford that. And um, as far as getting a message out, we're trying to do as many uh, as many things like this. The chairman, uh, Tom Fetzer, is trying to get, um, get that word out as often as we can, trying to hold press conferences and press releases. And there's also been uh, grassroots, event or- grassroots events organized that we've tried to take part in. 
you said that, you know, one of the big things is that the people of North Carolina just can't afford it right now. Do you think that these reforms would work better at a different time? You know, I, th- I think everybody can agree that, that health care needs to be reformed. And I think uh, if we get a right bill, that we could do it now. Um, I do not think that these that the measures we've seen so far will work um, today or, or next year, uh, for that matter. Um, I think that it's, it's just another example of too much spending and too much taxes. And I, I don't think that, that we should raise taxes very much at all, let alone in the middle of a recession. You said that, you know, this is not the time, and also some of the reforms just aren't going to work. What would you say is a proper way to reform health care? I think Republicans have um, have put forward some really positive ideas. Well, you don't have to look very far to find um, an example of this. Right here in our own state, Senator Richard Burr um, is one of the leading proponents of what's called the Patient's Choice Act. Um, and that is a, that is a comprehensive health care plan that hasn't received much attention um, from the media or from um, Democrats in Congress. You know, we hear a lot that the Republicans are called the party of no, and that's simply not true. In fact, as we put forward a lot of good ideas, um, one thing that, that we could do immediately is tort reform. Um, even the president mentioned it in his um, address to Congress. Democrats talk about it a lot, but they haven't they haven't acted on it yet. Tort reform is something that um, really raises the cost of health care uh, through frivolous, frivolous lawsuits. That needs to be addressed quickly. Um, we, we've been pushing for that. Republicans are like, um, you know, we, we need to get rid of pre-existing conditions, and that's one thing that this that the Baucus bill does include, and so does Senator Burr's. Um, we think that, that health care should be portable. In other words, when, um, when somebody changes jobs, um, they should be able to take that health care with them. Um, and, and again, we... Senator Burr's plan, the Patient's Choice Act, includes a, a lot of other things that um, that could really help. Uh, but Democrats, for some reason, have chosen to to kind of lock them out of the uh, out of the process in Washington. And that's are there any positives to this health care reform? Well, as I said, I think the um, I think uh, Senator Baucus has made an effort at bipartisanship, um, and I think that it's certainly a positive step that this does not include a um, a uh, government option. Um, how do you think we can curb health care costs? Um, again, I think uh, one one quick way to try to combat it is um, through tort reform. Um, and, and again, I'm going to be repetitive here, but uh, tort reform, portability, eliminate pre-existing conditions. Another idea um, that is covered in Senator Burr's plan is um, allowing states to band together in uh, what he calls regional pools. Maybe we could give a tax cut um, to help families pay for health insurance that they can't afford now. It kind of speaks to a a different, uh, a different ideological approach. Democrats feel like we need to raise taxes to help pay. Um, Republicans think we should cut taxes to help pay. And so, you know, there, there are ways that we can address it in the short term. Uh, Long term, we just need to promote um, competition. We need to we need to allow um, insurance providers to work across state lines. So, on the one hand, you have the issue of raising taxes and having to deal with all these costs, but on the other, you have the millions of Americans who don't have health care. What do you propose as a solution for that? Well, I think we uh, again we need to um, we need to encourage competition. We need to, to encourage um, some lessening of the prices. And, and again, there are there are a few ways that we can get there. Uh, we need to encourage prevention, uh, preventative health care. Uh, we need to try to um, to encourage an, an exchange, which is included in uh, the Patient's Choice Act. We just need to to take logical, incremental steps. This is not a quick fix. If Senator Baucus's bill passes, most of its 
issues will not take effect until 2013. This is a 10-year bill. Um, so it doesn't matter what we do. Nothing is going to be a quick fix. This is a big problem. It's going to take a big solution um, that will not happen overnight. But um, the main thing is we need to we need to come to the table. We need to listen to conservative opinions, um, which are out there. And uh, I think if we do that, we can eventually uh, reach a uh, reach a compromise. But this is not going to be a, a quick and easy fix. And that was GOP spokesman Jordan Shaw. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Welcome back to Eye on the Triangle's VIP. Next up, we have some more analysis on the health care reform. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle's VIP. Joining us here today is Dr. Stephen Green, an NC State political science professor. Green focuses a lot on health care issues in his classes and is here to give us his perceptions of the health care debate. Healthcare has been such a heated topic since President Obama's election. What do you think makes this issue so important right now? Basically, right now, we're on an unsustainable course when it comes to health care. It's eating up an ever larger and larger portion of our economy, and we're not getting any healthier for it. And furthermore, more and more people are losing their insurance. So the idea that we can just maintain the status quo is a fiction. The status quo is we're kind of heading down a waterfall, or at least the rapids, and if we don't do something to change it, uh, it's only going to get worse. What do you think about the proposed health care reforms right now? You know, they're far from perfect, and if you were going to design something from scratch, you would design something a lot better. But there's a very real political reality we're dealing with, and in the context of that political reality, I think the reforms that are proposed actually would make some very, very important differences and actually, you know, substantively, measurably improve a lot of Americans' lives. You said they're far from perfect. What do you think would make them perfect? Oh, boy. Well, honestly, we'd we'd scrap what we have. And, and, and start over. The employer-based system of healthcare is just really inefficient. Nobody would ever start with that system. It just doesn't make sense. Why should your ability to have healthcare be tied to who your employer is? Why should you have healthcare because you happen to work for NC State, as I do, or not have healthcare, uh, maybe if you work for some other local company? That just doesn't make sense. So what I think would make it perfect is if basically everybody in this country had a universal right to healthcare so that you just knew you were covered and you didn't have to worry about uh, a car accident or some you know unexpected disease making your family go bankrupt so that if you had a, a nice but boring job and you decided you wanted to start on your start out on your own make uh, your own bakery or whatever that you wouldn't lose your insurance you know it's really not so good for our economy to have health care tied to um, tied to your employment it creates something we call job lock and that stifles entrepreneurship. It stifles people willing to take chances on things because they're afraid to lose their health insurance. What would you say is one of the biggest obstacles for the reform passing right now? The Republican Party. (laughs) To put not too fine a point on it, but, uh, you know, the truth is it would be great to see a truly bipartisan reform. And there's a lot of things that, you know, well-meaning Republicans could come to agree on with, uh, with the Democrats who are pushing this. But, you know, right now it's, it's clear that certainly the leadership of the Republican Party in Congress has decided it is in their interest to simply to defeat health care reform and deny President Obama that legislative victory. 
what would be in the country's interest would be to work creatively to find solutions that both parties can agree on. And the truth is there actually is a fair amount of those if, if people would go down that path. So what can the Democrats do to get the Republican Party on their side? They can't. They can't. You know, okay. basically you look at this, this bill. Max Baucus has been working for months, right, with his gang of six trying to create a bipartisan bill, trying to get Republicans on board with this. You know, just the other day he comes out with his official version and how many Republicans came out in support of it? None, you know, and, and so that was a very intense effort at bipartisanship. And, you know, there's still the chance that you might get Olympia Snow, maybe Susan Collins, but all that work and to have maybe one Republican suggests that um, there's not exactly a very bipartisan atmosphere here. So what's the solution? The solution is the Democrats just have to put through the best bill they can, that they can pass with Democratic votes. And sure, you know, you, you look at these polls and the American people would like to see something more bipartisan. But the truth is, a year from now, when people have health insurance who didn't have it before, when somebody switches jobs and doesn't lose their health insurance because they have a pre-existing condition, they're not going to remember the fact that, oh, gee, the Democrats passed this with zero or one Republican votes. They're going to say, hey, this policy works for me. Or in the event that it's the disaster Republicans predict, which is highly unlikely, you know, then the Democrats will take the blame for it. So a lot of people compare the health care reform to socialism. How would you respond to those critics? By a clue. Uh, <laughs> you know, that is not socialism. Socialism is called government ownership of the means of production. There are a few countries that have socialized medicine, like Great Britain, Spain, Italy. And in those countries, the doctors are employees of the government. The hospitals are owned by the government. Nobody, nobody is suggesting anything remotely close to that. And by the way, evidence is those systems work pretty well. But regardless, what we're talking about is um, regulating uh, the industry much more so that more people have health care, so that the system works more efficiently. We have a monstrously inefficient system. We pay 50% more on average than European countries who are managing to insure all their citizens and are just as healthy. How can you how can you support that? That's just nuts. And to just simply say, well, if there's a government public insurance option, well, that's socialism. Um, I don't see all these people clamoring to get rid of Medicare, which is a government insurance program. Uh, it's a very popular program. And, and the people in Medicare are happier with their so-called socialized medicine than people in, with private insurance. One of the things that people who are against universal health care say is that, you know, places like Canada, the wait is so long to be able to see a doctor, you know, anything like that. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> Let, let's address the Canada okay. trope because people like to pick on Canada because, you know what, the, the, the truth is Canada's got some problems with their system. Canada could use some work. So, you know, nobody is suggesting we have Canada. The thing about Canada is that Canada has a system that would be like Medicare for all, where there is one insurance company, the government, and that's it. That's your only choice. Canada does not allow you to buy private insurance. Now, even the advocates of, of a single payer system here in America, I don't think would ever, ever suggest that Americans should not be allowed to buy supplemental private insurance if they want. Um, so there's a number of countries which provide a, a basic social insurance like they do in Canada and then allow you to provide to buy supplemental insurance. Uh, France is a great example of that, and they've got the number one rated healthcare system in the world. This may seem like a fairly simple question, but last week we interviewed students about whether or not they support universal healthcare and the reasons. And a lot of students told us whether or not they supported it, but didn't know exactly why. Why do you support universal healthcare? I think that to be the richest country in the world and not to be able to ensure that all our citizens have healthcare 
when there's a then when there's a lot of countries, uh, you know, basically every other modern democracy, which is not as rich as us, is able to do that for less money, you know, and th- and that we can't do this, um, you know, I think there's a nice moral case to be made for it. But honestly, just from a simply smart public policy, you know, costs and benefits, there's a very smart case to be made, and um, you know, the evidence again, this this is not uncharted territory, right? All you need to do is look at these other countries all over the world who have been able to do this and say, if France can do it, if Germany can do it, if Japan can do it, if England can, I could go on, right? Why can't we? And, you know, and they do it and they spend less money and everybody's insured and they get just as good care as we are. How could we not want that? Absolutely. If there was one misconception about all the proposals and healthcare reform in general that you could clear up, what would it be? This idea that it's a government takeover. You know, what, what we're talking about now with uh, the proposals that do include a public option, we're looking at a public option that would ensure maybe a few million Americans at the beginning out of 300 million. Um, you know, and, and not to mention we already have a government health insurance system. It's called Medicare, and people are very happy with Medicare. Nobody's looking to repeal Medicare. It works well, and it actually works, again, much more cost-effectively than private insurance. So nobody is saying that government should come between you and your doctor. They're saying that government actually can make the system work more efficiently. And as crazy as that sounds, again, all you have to do is look at the evidence from the whole rest of the developed world and see that, in fact, you know, the, the proper application of government policies does make a healthcare system work more efficiently. Do you think that maybe the Democrats push this too fast and that if it was a more gradual process, more Republicans would be in favor of it? Absolutely not. You know, I teach this in intro to American politics. You know, uh, when it comes to getting things done, it's move it or lose it. You know, it, when, when administrations pass major comprehensive legislation, it's invariably within that first year. Uh, there's just too many other things that get in the way. You, you lose the political momentum. So, again, this idea that, oh, we just need to slow down. It's a canard. The people who say that don't want to slow down and create a better package. They want to defeat health care reform. But, you know, it's, it's a much better argument. Oh, let's slow down and get it right. You know, again, this is not new territory. I mean, people have been thinking about and talking about and writing about the ways to reform health care for, for decades. And, and again, we have models from around the world that we can look at. It's not rocket science. Right now, everybody has a different opinion about health care reform, and there are so many misconceptions. What do you think the government needs to do to kind of clear up all those misconceptions and inform people about exactly what the proposed reforms are? They can't. They simply can't. You know, the, the truth is there's too many people working too hard to spread those misconceptions. And there's too many people who are predisposed to believe them. So, you know, the White House especially, you know, they've got websites and everything and they're, they're doing all they can, but you just can't eliminate them. You just have to, shall we say, get beyond them. You know, again, one of the reasons the slowdown uh, and all the trouble in August hurt is it gave a chance for all those preconceptions to, shall we say, spread like wildfire through the media. And, you know, the truth is, when you're the president and you're even talking about death panels to just, you know, to completely say what an absurd lie the, these are, you're losing, right? Because you're not talking about the positive things this reform is going to bring. So, you know, unfortunately in politics, the liars win. Just simply, you know, if you are consistently spreading lies out there, uh, they take hold and they're never going to completely disappear. Um, can I can I throw in that uh, – uh, my colleague here at NC State, Mike Cobb, has done some really interesting research that shows, you know, when when you, somebody learns something that supports their attitudes and then they learn that was a complete and utter fiction, 
you know, just just no question about it. They'll still believe it. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Green. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I think honestly, the, the truth is it's just the thing is doing major comprehensive health care reform. It's just not even a close call. The evidence is so overwhelming that we need major change. And, you know, the truth is we have all these facts that suggest that we do, that we can do it better. Again, all these examples from around the rest of the modern world. And, you know, sadly, the only way to counter those facts then is with lies. And so that's what we're seeing. But when you look at the the facts of the matter, again, just how much waste, how inefficient our system is and how there's, you know, again, many different ways you can do it better and still stay very much true to American principles of of how we like to do things here and keep private insurance involved and have market principles at work, which we can certainly keep. Um, You know, it's I don't want to say crazy not to want reform, but when you consider it in a sense, how much better things could be that we could be spending so much less money insuring everybody and be just as healthy. uh, I don't see how you could not want that. And that was Dr. Stephen Green on Eye on the Triangle's VIP. For more on Dr. Green or more on the healthcare debate, check out our blog on WKNC.org slash blog. Sound bites on Eye on the Triangle. Opinions from around the NC State campus. As always, I'm Caitlin here with Eye on the Triangle Sound Bites, our look into what's on the minds of those in the NC State community. This week we asked what people think of Obama's proposed health care reform. Healthcare reform is something that a lot of people seem to have heard about, but not really know about. As students, we really should know about what's going on with healthcare, since once we graduate, it's really going to affect us, as right now, those of us with insurance are on our parents' plan, and those with insurance are having to pay heavily out of pocket. The lines seem to be drawn between those who believe there should be a government-run healthcare plan and those who believe there shouldn't be. There doesn't seem to be much middle ground unless you just don't know about it. The president will be addressing Congress on his proposed healthcare reform tomorrow. As future working adults of America, it's time for us to listen up and have our own opinion. Obama is doing a great job <laughs> in the health care reform. My name is Megan McDougall. I'm a senior in animal science. I disagree with the health care reform, and I don't know why. My name is Jordan Gant. I'm a freshman in the College of Management. Um, I'm a big fan of Obama. I think a lot of his changes that he's trying to make are actually a very good thing. I think new health care would be a very good thing for a lot of people because clearly the old one wasn't really working. I'm Russell Butler. I'm a junior in fashion and textile management with a concentration in fashion development product management. This has been Sound Bites on Eye on the Triangle. Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle. Your local arts news. It's really easy to take for granted the music played on WKNC. You can just turn it on and turn it up. And we play some of the best music here in the local area and on the national level. Often the music played becomes the soundtrack for your day. It provides an escape from the daily to-do list. Which very well may be why, when talking about healthcare, musicians and their form of employment are a lost aspect of the debate. To discuss the musician's role in the healthcare issue, I sat down and talked with local musician and licensed insurance holder Alex Mayola. Mayola also heads up a project called HINT, the Health Insurance Navigational Tool, which is part of the Future of Music Coalition. Alex, tell us about the Future of Music Coalition. The Future of Music Coalition is where policy and law and music all sort of intersect. That's where we are. So... Things that happen on Capitol Hill that affect musicians 
is something that we're interested in. And that can be anything from uh, legislation that will affect uh, radio consolidation rules, things along those lines. Net neutrality is a big one for us right now. And uh, so those are the types of projects we work on. And what is your role in the Future of Music Coalition? My area of expertise, I guess you would call it, uh, what I was brought in to do was to help them address the uh, the healthcare crisis in the musicians' community because it's a big deal. The idea was if musicians are burdened with things of and related to healthcare issues, that that gets in the way of them uh, making their art, just as it would get in the way of any small business owner. I mean, because musicians are, at the end of the day, to varying degrees, they are a small business. You know, you make a product, you take it to the people, the people decide whether or not they want to buy it, and then you continue on. And you either stay in business or you go out of business, <laughs> meaning you, you keep your band together or you form a different band a number of times throughout your life. Um, but a lot of times we, we've, we find that a lot of the things that affect the small business owner also affect the musician. And just as uh, small business owners have groups that lobby for them in a lot of cases or advocate for them or explain things to them, that musicians needed the same thing, and that's where we came in. So one of those things is uh, health care. And musicians are sadly underinsured. We, uh, we found that uh, 45% of musicians don't have health insurance. Um, we did a study, and uh, out of the people polled, those are the numbers we came up with. So 55, only 55% of musicians have health insurance. And what we found is, out of that 55%, the 5% who do, only 5% who do have it because they're musicians, meaning they've gotten it through some sort of a union or a guild or, or some other type of thing, which means the rest of them, the rest of musicians who have health insurance, have it because they work a full-time job or because they pay for it out of pocket. Mayola is referring to the 2002 survey conducted by the Future Music Coalition. Available online, the report showed of those who reported not having health insurance, 76% said they did not have health insurance because they couldn't afford it. This number seems high, taking that more than half the respondents were under the age of 30. This brings up the question, well, who are the musicians? Your typical musician these days um, is the type of person who's going to work a job and, and they're going to sort of, I guess, subsidize their art by having a job that can pay for it. Um, and so... A lot of people, you know, do the typical jobs. They sling coffee, wait tables, uh, do temp work, do contract work, do things along those lines, something that will allow them to hit the road every now and then and play some shows. And obviously that's a good thing that we're at the point where people, if they choose to, can work outside of the old-fashioned record label deal. Um, but, of course, the more responsibility you take on yourself – well, that, that's when you become like a small business and not an employee of a big corporation, which is sort of how it used to be. And just as, as any um, small business owner has to worry about things like payroll and, 
and uh, how to get benefits and how to plan the rest of their lives. Uh, and somebody who works for a big corporation can just work from nine to five and go home and have the weekends off. Um, some of these small business concerns are becoming more and more uh, the concerns of the working musician. So if musicians are similar to small businesses, then where lies the problem? Mayola explained that it's not as easy as just taking the band from the stage to an LLC. If my band and your band that I'm sure you're going to form soon enough and every other band in the world, in North Carolina at least, decided we wanted to get together and put together some great health insurance guild or something along those lines, we wouldn't be able to do it because we don't share a tax ID number. So that begs the question, well, why don't you guys just get together and form a little LLC and get a tax ID number? Um, Well, you could do that, but then the money that Band X makes gets thrown into the same pool as Band Y, and you have to get a payroll disbursement type scenario going, and, and the whole thing gets so complicated that it just doesn't make it practical. So at a certain point, something can become so impractical that even if it's absolutely necessary, it just really can't be worked out. I mean, believe me, many people have tried, and I've spent hours and hours scratching my head as to how to make it work, and there's no clear way of doing it, keeping in mind that I have a health insurance license, so I know how the system works. I um, am a musician. I care about musicians. Uh I'm very outspoken about the fact that I'm a national health advocate. So I would do anything to solve this problem. And I've, I don't think I've left any rocks unturned. So what is the next step? Unfortunately, it involves uh, participating in the current system until the current system gets changed. And, and so what I recommend to people is do what you can to get some sort of catastrophic health insurance coverage and force. And this is something you as an individual can go out and buy, mm-hmm. buy catastrophic health, health insurance. Yeah. It puts you, not your checkups, not your dental, not your vision, Mm-mm. not your, my ankle hurts. Right. Generally, most wellness and small injuries and things would not even be picked up by it. So, I mean, if we look at Psy and Snooze and, and people along those lines, uh, they... Um, we're dealing with forms of cancers that required lots of checkups and things along those lines and, and uh, hospitalization and therapies and chemicals and, and regimens and things along those lines. While the musicians community can band together and do things like have uh, benefit concerts, I've been a part of them myself. I'm always happy to do that. Uh, we're lucky if we raise between one and $5,000 or something along those lines. So somebody who's saddled with a half million dollars in debt, I mean, benefit stuff is great because we all feel good. We show the person that we love them, which I think is a very important thing when you're in the lowest point of your life. But as far as the financial benefit of it, it's a very, very short-term thing. Whereas if there was something in place to do the heavy lifting, i.e. an insurance policy with a high deductible on it, and even if you were saddled with the first $5,000, theoretically, the part that the individual is responsible for, say the first 5000 bucks, would be the type of thing that could get handled through charity philanthropy, benefit concerts, 
people ponying up $50 and things along those lines. And then the heavy lifting is taken care of by the health insurance policy. Now, the reason to get a catastrophic health insurance policy is because they're considerably cheaper than one that has a bunch of benefits built into it. Well, that was my next question. Why not go and just buy an individual health plan for yourself? If you're well, a single male, single female, you're mm-hmm. a mis- musician, your job does not provide mm-hmm. benefits for you, why don't you... What is preventing people from going and buy individual plans? Cost, mainly. And so the problem is, if you want something with a lot of benefits, and I think that's the perception, that when you buy a health insurance policy, it's going to take care of you and do all these things for you, uh, then the cost is usually out of the reach of most people. And we're talking out of the reach of most people as in, let's look at our average cell phone bill. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's say $70 a month is your average cell phone bill. Yes. And if you have one of those nice iPhones, you're looking at 100 Mm-hmm. Where does the health insurance monthly payment relate to that? A little above the iPhone. A little above the yeah, iPhone. Yeah, it would be where you would be able to get something that was more on the catastrophic end of things, I think, for uh, most young men. And it might be a little bit more for young women. So I I suggest to people that... If you can't afford to get a comprehensive health insurance plan, getting something, anything in place that takes care of the bulk of the cost if there's a major catastrophic loss is worth quite a lot. It feels weird because if you go to the doctor and you get a bill, even though you have health insurance, it it it, it, it feels like if I'm paying my money to the playground bully, <laughs> then I should get protection against everything, Right. Well, no, you 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 aren't. You're not going to get that. Um, but if uh, if if it really hits the fan, that policy is going to be there for you, and it's going to take care of the. For more information on the project, you, Hint, you can go to www.futureofmusic.org. And as always, for more news on the local music community, you can go to wknc.org. Hear this on Eye on the Triangle. Your local music news. If you're interested in experiencing an impressive array of local music and helping out a Raleigh neighbor in need, this Sunday, the 27th of September, White Collar Crime is offering an opportunity to do both at the same time. Event organizer Mike McDonald sat down to tell us about it. Thank you for joining us, Mike McDonald. If you will, please tell us what's going on this Sunday. On Sunday the 27th, uh, we are hosting at White Collar Crime a uh, benefit for uh, for a friend of ours, Tom Cushman. He ended up in the hospital in early August, spent some time in uh, ICU for a while, and we're just trying to uh, throw a benefit for him to take care of some of his immediate needs, such as, you know, keeping the, keeping the lights on, keeping food in the uh, refrigerator, you know, day-to-day things that people in in recovery are going to need. I just felt that, you know, once I learned about the situation and went and seen him in the hospital and, you know, real, I just kind of felt like I had to do something. So being a member of the music community, as is Tom and, you know, all our, all the people we know and all the connections that we have, we, you know, just kind of asked the help of a lot of people. A lot of people come out of the woodwork and volunteered to help out, um, you know, basically volunteer their time and their talents to help put this thing together. So we're going to have a, we're going to have a benefit show with about uh, about 11 bands, some of the best local acts around right now. Now we're going to try to raise some money for them. Well, I wish you luck. 11 bands, it's a fairly full bill. What time are you all getting started on Sunday? The show's going to start at 
3 o'clock in the afternoon, and it's going to go till 2 a.m. We're, we're going to allow basically 45 minutes set for each band with a maybe a 15-minute changeover. That'll be all left up to our uh, sound guy, Jack Kane, to organize. Hopefully he'll do a great job at it, which he always does. Anyone who knows Jack knows that he's the, he's the best at what he does. Our lineup for the day is going to kick off at 3 o'clock with a band named Gringo, piled of a couple of my coworkers, actually, and uh, friends of Tom, so they definitely wanted to be involved in the event. We have other bands like uh, The Trousers, Ricky Bacchus, The Luckiest Girls are coming out, Caitlin Carey, Kenny Roby, The Infamous Sugar, The Bleeding Hearts, uh, Hardcore Axe, Man Will Destroy Himself, and Rocket Cottage. New bands like Sea Legs are going to play, and local rock and roll band... One of my personal favorites, The Tease, is going to be uh, headlining for us that evening. Other than seeing him out and about at shows, how do people know Tom Cushman? Tom has played in a, in a lot of bands over the past few years. A lot of people see Tom walking around town. Currently works over at uh, Charlie Goodnight's Comedy Club. He's the guy behind the scenes making the, making the drinks in the comedy club. I used, to, uh, I used to work with him at a place called Mojo's on Glenwood Avenue. Uh, Tom cooked in there for a while, and you know anyone that considers themselves a you know a downtowner would definitely know definitely know Tom. If you can't make it to the show, what's the best way to help out? Other than doing donations and showing up to this, it's you know keep keep Tom in your thoughts and prayers. And the best way to you know support without being there is to support local music and arts. And you know you know these are the people that are you know donating their time right now. It's making this this event possible and you know without their kindness you know this this wouldn't even be happening so yeah definitely support that end of the community when you first started getting this concert organized what were some of the initial reactions you know once everybody found out it was for tom that everybody was on board almost immediately you know since then we've had a lot of local businesses that are willing to donate drinks and food and all these things to you know to feed the members of the bands donating their time throughout the day. You know, it's it's really nice though to see, you know, all the all the people that have, you know, really come out to, you know, to lend a hand for us. This is the rock show I've always wanted to put on, but I've, you know, this obviously isn't the reason that I wanted to do it, but I really hope that we can help Tom out for his immediate needs and you know, it's going to be a great event and if, you know, and if you miss it, it's, you know, it's going to be one of those it's one of those things that you'll be you'll be regretting for a long time because it's going to be that good. Thanks for listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1 FM Raleigh. Next up is our Wolfpacker of the Week. Eye on the Triangle sat down and spoke with alumnus Ben McNeely. McNeely is co-director of Modern Film Fest, which he spoke to us a little bit about, and you can listen to now. My name is Ben McNeely, 2005 graduate of NC State University. I am currently web content coordinator for the Independent Tribune in Concord and Kannapolis, North Carolina, and I'm also the co-director of Modern Film Fest. Modern Film Fest is uh, an idea that myself and my colleague Michael Knox came up with back in April. It is a, a new film festival we are putting on in Kannapolis at the Gym Theater, which is one of the oldest uh, theaters in the state. It is a beautiful theater. It is well-maintained. Uh, it's an old movie house with a great neon sign and marquee out front. The story behind it is uh, my, my colleague, Michael Knox, who lives in Asheville, he has directed his own full-length documentary about his time in the uh, 
traveling circus that, that he was in as a child. And we were talking in April, he came back to visit, because he originally was in this area, and we worked together at the newspaper, and he said, I want to do my own film festival so I can show my own film. And I said, really? Well, I have the perfect place to do it, and that's at the Gym Theater in Kannapolis. So you know, we, we sort of uh, left it at that, and we started talking to folks here in the community, some the, the theater manager and the community folks, and just to pitch the idea to see what kind of response it would get, and it got great response. Everyone thought, oh, this is a great idea. This would be a cool thing for Kannapolis. We'll support you. And as time went on, we decided we started going after films that uh, Knox had seen on the film festival circuit. He had attended full-frame documentary festival in uh, Durham and the River Run Film Festival in Winston-Salem, and he saw some really, really great films there, documentaries, narratives, just really some great stuff. And he started pursuing them. You know, before long, we had, about a month into this, we, we already had uh, our, our lineup set. We had 15 films over three days, September 25th, 26th, and 27th, uh, at the Gym Theater. It's one screen, it's one venue, but, it, you know, this theater is beautiful. It's big, it has 900 seats, it has a balcony. From a logistical standpoint, it, it is simple, but, you know, from a viewer standpoint, it can be a bit difficult because there's only one screening of each film. Whereas at the other film festivals, you have multiple screens and you may have multiple showings of films. Knox and I have pretty much put together a professional or at least a semi-professional film festival in the span of less than six months, where most film festivals take a year, year and a half to do. The reason why we've been able to put to, put this together in such a short amount of time is that we've had great community support and outreach. We partnered with the city of Kannapolis, uh, their, their Parks and Rec, because they have a, a big digital projector that they use for movies in the park. We've been, we've been able to set that up in the gym theater, which only is set up to do 35 millimeter projection. And for us to do this for little or no cost is because we're using DVDs instead of 35-millimeter prints. City of Kannapolis was very enthusiastic and, and got on board, you know, essentially donated their um, projector and a projectionist to, uh, to run it during the film festival. We are also having a gala reception next door uh, after our main feature, which uh, one, of our, one of our main features is a documentary about Garrison Keillor called The Man on the Radio in the Red Shoes. And next door is to that is going to be our gala reception uh, at 46, which is the restaurant of Dole Food owner uh, David Murdoch, who also uh, is the founder of the North Carolina Research Campus, which is right across the street from the Gym Theater. So we've gotten a lot of great community support and a lot of uh, excitement from community members, not just in government and in the arts, but just from everyone that uh, sees uh, this coming to Kannapolis. We've, we've had a lot of support from our local chamber. We've had a lot of support from the Charlotte Regional Partnership, the Charlotte Regional Film Commission, which sets up and, and helps film producers and directors and production teams find locations and attract uh, the, those sorts of uh, productions to the Charlotte region, which is not just Mecklenburg County or Cabarrus County, but it, it's a 14 county region in, in North and South Carolina. So again, we've, we've gotten a lot of support and a lot of enthusiasm about what we're doing. The idea is to bring films to an area that normally wouldn't see these types of films. These are films, independent films, that 
do not have distribution deals. They're not in the multiplexes. And so we wanted to bring these films here to show people that there is more than what's going on or what you see at the multiplex down the road. And so uh, we've got a we, you know we've got a great lineup. We have 15 films. Um, some of the some of them, if you are a film buff or have gone to the other uh, film festivals in the state or the region, you will you will know. And others you will never even heard of. But we've got a good mix of documentaries. We've got a good mix of narratives. There are other film festivals, more established film festivals in the state, and we understand that. We are a totally new entity, but it is, for this area at least, it's something unusual and something different, and I think it's something people can get behind. Obviously, this is our first year. We want to do it again next year. We have no expectations of how big of a crowd we're going to get. If we get a big crowd, we'll take it. If we get a small crowd, we'll take it again, and we'll just see what we can do. We'll just go with it and, and see what happens, and we can take that and build on it for next year. And that was Eye on the Triangle's Wolfpacker of the Week, Ben McNeely. For more on Modern Film Fest from McNeely, check out wknc.org slash blog.